John 7. We'll begin in verse 1 this evening, picking up where we left off in the end of John 6 last time. We had spent a considerable amount of time in John 6, four messages. Uh, It's a long chapter of scripture, 71 verses, and um, plenty to cover. But we are moving on now into John 7. You know, it has once been said, and rightly so, that the world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. The world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. Now, the meaning of this statement is particularly valid as we consider the spiritual context, perhaps the one in which it was given, where we see that those things which the world most approves of are those things which are quite dangerous in the lives of believers. Conversely, it is quite often those things that the world hates most which are the most important and needful in our walk with God. We have learned well throughout the weeks the love that this world has for darkness and the abhorrence which this world has for light. We've learned it from the testimony in John 1, speaking of very bluntly that the world loves darkness rather than light. We have seen it in the hearts of the Jews. We have heard it in the responses of the Pharisees. We even saw it, observed it in the false devotion of the multitudes in Galilee. That men are quite content to rest in their darkness. In fact, we would call that one of the two great themes of the book of John. The one being belief through acceptance of the light. The other being unbelief through love of the darkness. Yet, of all the ways in which man's love of darkness has been manifest in the book of John thus far, I think John 7 particularly portrays this love in a way that perhaps we have not seen it before. And it's particularly bold, perhaps, pronounced in these verses in John 7 because of the particular level of truth and spiritual exposure that the men and women in this chapter are being exposed to. And so we're going to look this evening at three characteristics of the unregenerate world and this unregenerate world's reaction to the Word of God. So three characteristics of these people, three things that they dislike, three things that trouble the unregenerate world, three things that are in fact so important to the Christian life. We'll look at them together. Look with me in John 7. We'll read the first ten verses to start out. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast. I go not up yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet come. Full come, excuse me. When he had said this, these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Our first characteristic of the unregenerate world that we'll look at this evening, number one, the unregenerate world hates spiritual exposure. The unregenerate world hates 
spiritual exposure. The chapter begins with three words after these things. Consequently, we would assume from those three words that what Jesus will be doing in John chapter 7 is something that happens in time after that which happened in John 6. So we'll do a quick remembrance of what happened in John 6. We spent four weeks talking about it, so I trust we're fairly familiar with what happened in John 6. But we remember Jesus fed the 5,000, and he fed them somewhere near Tiberias, which was on the southwest end of the Sea of Galilee. He then journeyed to Capernaum. We had the little blip in there about Jesus walking on the water, a blip which becomes far more apparent in the other Gospels. Uh, the, The... Events surrounding Jesus Christ walking on the water, Peter coming out to meet him, Peter sinking, all of that was happening in this event, but we don't get any of that in the John account, but all of that happened. They end up in Capernaum, where these same followers that had been fed, this same multitude, meet him the next day and say, hey, we were looking for you. And then they get into this lengthy discussion. It begins with a talk about the resurrection, and it somehow gets into the idea of manna and of bread and of food. Of course, we know how, because the people were so stuck on this idea of food, not really worrying or caring about Jesus Christ being a great miracle worker and the authority that that showed, caring more about getting another meal from this man. And so they talk about food, and Jesus Christ paints that great difference between the life-sustaining manna in the days of Moses, and the life-giving or life-securing salvation which he came to bring. And now we find ourselves after these things in John 7. Jesus walking through this land of Galilee because it was not safe for him to walk in Jewry. Jewry is a term that the idea of being a Jew was particularly tied to that area of Judea. And so when we think about the Jews, we are thinking about those specifically that lived in Judea. These also would have technically, specifically, although perhaps not so much by the time of Jesus Christ uh, walking on the earth, been a reference to those who were of the tribe of Judah. And of course, since Judea was a derivative of that area of Judah where that tribe was, that's where this idea of being a Jew came from. So it was a subset of Israelite. You'd have the Galileans to the north, the Samaritans in the middle, and the Jews in Judea. And so that's what it's speaking of there as Jesus Christ was not willing or would not walk in Jewry for fear that they would kill him or because he didn't. His time had not yet come. And so he was staying out of their way. However, the Feast of Tabernacles was drawing near. Well, In accordance with the Jewish law, Jesus Christ would need to go down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus Christ lived under the law. He submitted himself to the law. He was going to be present at this feast. And so with that in mind, recognizing that the Feast of Tabernacles is coming up in John 7, let's remind ourselves once again of the feasts that we have found ourselves in. Now, since John chapter 2 we have really uh, a great deal of John has surrounded itself with the the feasts because that was a a great time of of Jesus Christ going into Jerusalem and doing miracles. In John 2, you recall, there was the first Passover. Passover would have been between March and April. 
uh, in, on our calendar. So in John 2, we see the first Passover of Jesus Christ's ministry. Then in John 5, we see a second feast. This feast was probably either Pentecost or most likely a Feast of Tabernacles. And I'll tell you why most likely it was Tabernacles here a little bit later in the sermon. And so that would have been October, November of that same year. So we're thinking Jesus Christ begins his ministry. We have a feast, the, the Feast of um, Passover. About six, eight months later, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, John chapter 5. So John 2, John 5. And then in John chapter 6, we have another Passover. And so we've gone back to that April or May time of the next year to another Passover. And now John 7, we see a Tabernacles feast. So we've had two Passover feasts and, well, we've had two Pentecosts and two Tabernacles as well. This would have been about two years into the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we'll see in a moment where we can connect some of these dots. Now, verse 3 reveals to us a conversation between Jesus and his half-brothers. We call them his half-brothers because uh, Jesus had the same mother, but not the same father, blood father, knowing that Jesus was born of a virgin. And the tone of his father, or of his brothers, was somewhat mocking here. As we see in verse 5, they did not believe on him. They were not among those who believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So they tell him, Jesus, you are Messiah. You claim to be this great Messiah. Go down to the Jews then. Declare yourself openly. After all, if a man desires to be known of his people, he doesn't do his work in secret. If a man desires to be known, then he ought to openly proclaim himself. Their implication, if Jesus was a true miracle worker, why doesn't he just make his miracles known unto the world? Now I can trust you see the irony of these statements. Jesus will make the foolishness of their words known in just a moment. Basically, they were telling him that if he truly is Messiah, there is an entire group of people down in Jerusalem waiting for Messiah. So why not just make himself openly known to them? Of course, they should have known by this point what most people did know he has made himself openly known. He has done great miracles. He has done incredible things. He is not walking in secret. He is not avoiding jewelry because... He is afraid to do miracles. He is avoiding it because they are seeking to kill him. Notice Jesus' response in verse 6 and 7. My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Here is what his brothers failed to understand. The nation of Israel said that they were waiting for their Messiah. The Jews said they were waiting for their Messiah, but what they were really waiting for was a man who would confirm them in their national pride and in their self-righteousness. They were not waiting for a man who would proclaim the word of God. They were waiting for a man that would give them comfort over their own dark hearts. They were waiting for a man who would confirm them in their own dark hearts. And so rather than loving Messiah when he came, the people hated Messiah because Messiah revealed to them that they were not, in fact, right with God as they were presupposing themselves to be. So Jesus said, I don't go up yet to, to the feast. You go up. You'll be late if you don't. Go ahead and go. 
and I don't go up yet. So Jesus stayed, his brethren went up to the feast, and he, after a little time, went up secretly. It is a strong contrast that Jesus makes here, and it is this strong contrast between himself and his brethren that I would like to focus on as we consider this first point, that the unregenerate world hates spiritual exposure. Jesus tells his brothers that the world cannot hate them, but does in fact hate him. The difference between them and him was obviously not family, nor was it personality. It's very interesting that this conversation would happen between Jesus and his brethren, because what that is highlighting is that the hatred that the world has toward Jesus is not because he's a Galilean. It's not because he is from Nazareth. It's not because of his bloodline. It's not because of his lineage. There is something different within which the world is compelled or through which the world is compelled to hate him. And so we understand that the unregenerate world hated Jesus because he testified that their works were evil. He exposed their spiritual bankruptcy and made it painfully obvious that, that they had no righteousness within themselves and that all of their efforts unto righteousness were nothing but vanity, were nothing but empty. And this is why the world could not hate Jesus' brethren, because these men were just as wicked as them. The unregenerate world does not hate that which does not expose its sin. Even when the actions of a person are packed with spiritual ideas and are packed with religion and are packed with spiritual language, the world is more than happy to tolerate such things as long as accompanying those spiritual thoughts and those spiritual ideas does not bring with it the idea of conviction of sin. The idea of an unregenerate man who needs to humble himself before God. The idea of a great God and our obligation to Him. And so as we consider the world around us, consider what's happening in the news, consider what happens with world religions, consider how it might be that when toleration is preached, it's preached for everyone except the Christian. Consider how when we're called to be um, people that are understanding of world religions, it is be understanding as long as you don't preach the word of God. Because the unregenerate world, a world of wickedness, can tolerate religious people. A world of wickedness can tolerate spiritual talk. But what it cannot tolerate is them being found out in their darkness. Spiritual exposure. The world cannot tolerate it. And to one degree or another, this is perhaps a good barometer. As we look at ministries, how accepted is that ministry in the eyes of the world? Now, it's not a foolproof barometer, but when a ministry finds acceptance among an unregenerate world and a large number of unregenerate people who are inherently hostile to the truth of God's word and particularly inherently hostile to the idea of spiritual exposure, it gives you an idea of the tenor of that ministry. It helps us recognize that there might be very little spiritual exposure in that ministry. 
And if there's no spiritual exposure in that ministry, then is that ministry truly teaching the truths of God's Word? And so the unregenerate world hates spiritual exposure. Second, as we continue in verses 11 through 19, the unregenerate world hates inconvenient truth. It doesn't like spiritual exposure. It doesn't like the light to be shined on its darkness. But it does not like inconvenient truth either. 11 through 19, look at it with me. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man, and others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him, for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. He that speaketh of himself seeketh his own glory, but he that seeketh his glory that sent him, the same is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? The unregenerate world hates inconvenient truth. Now, the leaders of the Jews were eager to find Jesus when the feast began. They knew that Jesus would be there. This was the time. There were three times a year that the Jews had to go up, and Jesus was in Jerusalem every time. He was going to follow the law. He was going to submit himself to the law, and therefore he was going to be at these feasts. They knew he would be there, but he didn't come up with his brethren. They saw his brethren coming down the road. He wasn't there, and they wondered, where is Jesus. Now, there's numerous reasons why the spiritual leaders would have been looking for him. Most likely, however, it's because they wanted to censor him. They wanted to keep an eye on him. They wanted to know what he taught in order that as he was in the, the temple or perhaps at, around the time he left, they could do damage control. They could start to remind the people of their teachings and try to refute Jesus Christ. We also find in verse 12, however that the people were not quite as opposed to him as the leaders of the Jews were. In fact, there were many that believed Jesus to be a good man, many who believed him to be a prophet, while there were others that believed the propaganda of the Jewish leaders, that he was a deceiver of the people. And so we're beginning to see already, as Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, this, these dividing lines. People that see him as a good man, people that respect his teaching, and people that see him as a deceiver don't respect his teaching. But what we don't see in either of these groups, per se, is a bunch of believers. Not yet. Regardless of the people's opinion, however, no one really expressed that opinion out loud. See, they feared the Jews. The Jews did not openly express their contempt for Jesus all the time. However, they would on occasions, as we've read in the book of John, express their disagreement. They recognized that Jesus would often condemn the leaders of the Jews for their hypocrisy. And so they knew that there was a tension, and so they were not about to speak of Jesus openly for fear of the Jews. It is always an unrighteous government who must, either through force or through intimidation, censor its people. See, righteous men, when they are ruling can combat lies and deceit with integrity and truth. They know that lies and deceit will not take hold because integrity and truth will win the day 
But when unrighteous men rule, truth becomes treason. Because truth will expose them. And so in an attempt to disguise their wickedness in the eyes of the people, they make truth treason, lest they be exposed and they perhaps lose their power. During the feast, it says around the midpoint of the feast, Jesus enters the temple. As he was wont to do, wherever he went, he would go into the place of teaching and he would teach. The Pharisees who were listening, notice it says in verse 15, and the Jews marveled. Well, this word Jews, as we've come across it, speaks quite often of the leadership of the Jews. We would see no reason, particularly since we've already talked about the contrast between the Jews and the people here, verses 11 and 12, we would see no reason why the Jews here would not be speaking specifically of the leadership, specifically the Pharisees, also the scribes, and perhaps some Sadducees as well. And so as they listen to Jesus teaching in the temple, they marvel. And they say, how knoweth these, this man letters, excuse me, having never learned. The word letters there in the Greek is a general word. A word which can mean specific letters like alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Or it could mean the general writings. Uh, the, the letters as in those writings that have been passed down. Uh, that have been given the Old Testament scriptures. The idea is that Jesus, who never had any formal religious training, was in the temple speaking with men who had devoted their entire lives to the study of the law and of the prophets. And yet Jesus, with no formal training, was able to speak intelligently with them concerning the word of God, the content, and the meaning of the word of God. Notice Jesus' answer in verse 16. He says, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Literally, the things that Jesus was saying to them was not sourced in years of careful study. It was sourced in the very words of God the Father as God spoke through him. Because he is the word of God. And here we see Jesus Christ declare quite clearly, what John 1, 1 tells him, describes him to be the word of God. By extension, he says in verse 17, the man that does God's will is going to know that Jesus' teaching is truth and that it is sourced in God, not simply the words or philosophies of men. This should be a reminder to us. There are many men out there saying many things. Just this morning I had a conversation with... Uh, Ron here about, as he was sitting down eating with us, about Mormonism. He was asking me about Mormonism. And as I was talking to him, one of the things that I highlighted or emphasized about Mormonism is that though they say a lot of very good sounding things, the things that they say are not true. They're not scriptural. They're not based in the word of God. You can take the word of God, you can open the word of God, and you can say what you're saying is not the same as what God's word says. And so while their words may sound good, while they might come with the author all the authority that these men can muster at the door as they're trying to convince you that they're right, their authority falls flat before the authority of the word of God. This is true authority. And it rings in the heart of man and it rings in the conscience of man as truth because God has written his law upon our hearts. 
And that's what Jesus is testifying here. So what was it? What was it that Jesus was teaching as he was in the temple? The Jews marvel at his teaching. The people are interested in his teaching. What was it that Jesus was teaching? Well, verse 19 gives us a hint. It says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? So we know that Jesus is teaching in the temple regarding the law of Moses. Well, verses uh, 21 through 24 will help us specifically understand. We'll get there in a moment. That Jesus is specifically speaking of God's intent regarding the observance of the Sabbath. We're going to get even more particular than that, and I'm excited to share it with you. But all things in due time. What Jesus is making clear to the Pharisees, who prided themselves in keeping their own interpretation of the law, was that their hearts and their lives were in violation of the law of Moses, even though they were seeking to interpret the law and live it rigidly. That's why he says, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keep it? In other words, it's, it was not me who gave you the law, it was Moses. Remember that man that you venerate, the man that you lift up on this pedestal? He was the one that gave you the law. The, the Jews got the law under his command, and yet, me, teaching here, is making it clear to you that you're not keeping the law. And this brought the Jews to a very uncomfortable place. This was exactly what they didn't want to hear. And exactly what they didn't want the people to hear. See, Jesus was right. They knew Jesus was right. The Jews knew it. The people knew it. Jesus knew it. Jesus was right. And what he was telling them was that they had this whole system of religion erected around the law. But their interpretations of the law had brought them to a point where in their zeal for keeping the law, they had missed the spirit of the law. And therefore, they were not, in fact, keeping the law. And this brought the Jews to a crossroads. As Jesus sat in the temple that day, they could do one of two things. Well, they could say, well, no, we're going to continue with our own interpretations. And by saying that, they would be publicly declaring their rejection of the Mosaic law in loyalty to their own framework that they had erected. Or they could say, you know what, Jesus, you're right. This is what the law says. We're not keeping it. We're not doing it. We're going to repent change our minds, and get back in line with the law of God. Neither one of those was a good option for the Jews. They didn't like the idea of saying, well, we're just not going to follow the law of Moses anymore. They wouldn't, weren't going to do that. Nor were they going to submit themselves to the law of Moses. See, they needed people to think that they were still following the law of Moses even though they were actually rejecting the law of Moses. And so they did what wicked leaders tend to do. They pursued the third option, which is silence the messenger. Instead of openly proclaiming that they don't want to obey the the law of God or humbling themselves before the law of God, they're just going to seek to kill Jesus. Now, they would not say this openly, but it was all over their hearts. It was all over their actions. Jesus knew their hearts. And so he says in verse 19, why go ye about to kill me? See, the unregenerate world, they certainly hate spiritual exposure, but they hate inconvenient truths. So often to the world around us, truth is simply a roadblock that must be gotten over to get to their end goal. 
Yet Jesus' example here reveals that the truth is, in fact, unavoidable, and that every man must eventually make a decision concerning the truth. Every man will either reject the truth, or they will accept the truth. And, you know, as Christians, we must do this as well. The greatest decision in our life is the decision to accept the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sin, that he bore that payment for us, and that if we believe on his name, we will be saved from our sin. That's the greatest truth that we can possibly accept. However, as believers, we face decisions every day regarding the truth. And you know, sometimes this truth is rather inconvenient. 1 John 2.15 tells us, to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Second Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, and God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Yet every day, the unregenerate world that surrounds us bombards us as Christians and as churches and as ministries with opportunities to be like the world while deceitfully attempting to convince us that we can still be servants of God and servants of the world at the same time. And as Christians, we would seek to love God, we would seek to serve God, but our flesh is still within us. And so sometimes this whole idea of not loving the world can be a very inconvenient truth for us. Just like it can be for anyone else. But what's the difference between us as believers and the world surrounding us? Well, the difference is we have come to recognize that even inconvenient truth, if it's truth, is right. And we love truth. And we desire truth. And so we'll follow after truth. Even if it's not what our heart, which is deceitful, wants. Even if it's not what our flesh, which is deceitful, wants. We're going to follow the truth. Whereas the unregenerate world, when inconvenient truth faces them, they don't respond that way. There's no submission to the truth. There is rejection of the truth. And may it remind us as well how important truth is to the believer. How important it is that our lives are a reflection of truth. How important it is that we're not living a lie. How important it is that we aren't shiny and nice on the outside with our suits and our skirts and our hair and our, you know, we smell good, we look good, whatever the case may be, and yet on the inside, we're full of dead men's bones. Yet on the inside, we're dirty. There's no room in the Christian life for that. Because the Christian life must be a life of truth. Because that is what the life of our Savior is. That is the life that we lead. So, the unregenerate world hates spiritual exposure. The unregenerate world hates inconvenient truth. Third and finally this evening, the unregenerate world hates righteous judgment. The unregenerate world hates righteous judgment. Pick up with me in verse 20. People answered and said, Thou hast a devil, speaking to Jesus, who goeth about to kill thee? Jesus answered and said unto them, I have done one work, and ye all marvel. Moses therefore gave unto you circumcision, not because it is of Moses, but of the fathers. And ye on the Sabbath day circumcise a man. If a man on the Sabbath day receiveth circumcision, 
that the law of Moses should not be broken, are ye angry at me because I have made a man every whit whole on the Sabbath day? Judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgments. And we'll stop there for the moment. The people were quite confused when Jesus looked at the Jews, the Pharisees, the leaders, and said, Why go ye about to kill me? People looked around and they said, Jesus, who's trying to kill you? No one's trying to kill you here. You must be crazy. You must have a devil in you. That's what that means in, in, in their vernacular. You're crazy. Who's going about to kill you? Well, just because the people didn't understand the intent of their leaders does not invalidate Jesus' comments. They were seeking to kill him. We'll see it a little bit later in this very passage. Then he continues in verse 21. And here is where we finally recognize exactly what Jesus has been teaching. Exactly what's been going on in the temple that day. 21 through 24. Jesus had been explaining to the people why it was he was justified in healing the man with the infirmity on the Sabbath day. Do you remember that? In John 5, two chapters ago, that's a lot of verses. Because there were 71 verses in John 6. In John 5, Jesus healed the man with the infirmity. That man had had an infirmity for 38 years. He was standing, or not standing, he was sitting on his bedroll by a pool, the pool of Bethesda, underneath those arches, waiting for the waters to stir. When the waters would stir, the first man or woman to enter into that pool would be healed. He'd been trying for a long time. We don't know how long. But he'd been with the infirmity for 38 years. Jesus comes to him on a day during a feast, says, take up thy bed and walk. The man that is healed does so. He takes up his bed and walk. Well, the problem was, as we recall from John 5, he was carrying a burden on the Sabbath day. See, Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath, and he picked up that little bedroll, and he began walking. He was carrying a burden on the Sabbath. So he was condemned by these Pharisees under their interpretation of the law for this horrible, deplorable act of taking up his bed and walking. We have said that most likely the feast of Jesus, excuse me, the feast that Jesus, John 5 does not designate what feast it was, but most likely I told you it was the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7 is why I think that to be the case. Because most likely the reason why this came up was because the last time Jesus had been there, maybe the people were sitting around Jesus in the temple and Jesus was answering a bunch of their questions and someone raised their hand and said, Jesus, I remember the Feast of Tabernacles last year. And when you were here last year, I remember you healing that man at the Pool of Bethesda. Maybe the man that was healed at the Pool of Bethesda was one that was sitting at Jesus' feet this year. Jesus, it's been a year since you healed me. Remember, you, you came and you, you found me and you said, go and sin no more. Well, Jesus, I've done what you've asked. I'm, I'm serving God. Thank you for healing me. And it came up again, this man that was healed a year ago at Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that's just my theory. It could have been Pentecost, but I believe that to be most, most reconcilable that this would have been the next year at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus reasons with them out of the law as to why he was justified in healing this man on the Sabbath day. Jesus tells them, here's the deal. The Sabbath day has a, a, a command that you don't do certain things, that you rest on this day. 
But if you have a child born and the eighth day of that child's existence happens to fall on a Sabbath, you're going to circumcise that child either way. That child is going to be circumcised on the Sabbath because that is the eighth day and you need to obey the law of Moses that says circumcise your child on the eighth day. And so he points out a dramatic double standard whereby they are willing to cut a young child on the Sabbath day. They are willing to circumcise him, but they get angry when another man is healed on the Sabbath day. He says, look, folks, there is a double standard in the leader's interpretation of the law. And he's making this very clear. And this is what he's reasoning out of the law. And this is what he's telling them. And this is why he looked at them in verse 19 and says, Moses gave you the law, but none of you keep the law. Because though you are trying to follow these rigid standards, there's double standards everywhere. There's contradictions everywhere because your interpretations have gone so far beyond what God intended and your heart is not right with God. And so he exhorts them. Not to judge based upon appearance, but to judge righteous judgments. Verse 24. See, the Pharisees judged the man with infirmity on the basis of minimal understanding of what the man was doing, with the added minimal context as to why he was doing it. They didn't know why, perhaps. He was walking. They didn't know that Jesus had commanded him to. Jesus is making it clear that the action itself could not have been found to violate the Sabbath expectation. And so the fruit of the action wasn't wrong. He also proved that the heart of the man was not in violation of the Sabbath. He was not standing up and walking in rebellion to the leaders of the Jews. He was doing it because the God of the universe had told him to. He had been told and he was acting in obedience to the one who had healed him. And so Jesus proved to them that their judgment was unrighteous and therefore false. Well, the Pharisees would not be very happy with this. Here they are in the temple. People sitting all around Jesus. And they have just been exposed spiritually. They have just faced inconvenient truths regarding the word of God. And now they have been accused of unrighteous judgment. The very thing that was their bread and butter, as it were. That's what they did. They judged out of the law. And now they have just been found to be delivering unrighteous judgment. There's some cleanup work to do in verses 25 through 31. Let's read them and talk about them for a moment. Then we'll conclude. Then said some of them of Jerusalem... Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, Ye both know me, and ye know whence I am. And I am not come of myself. But he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him. For I am from him, and he hath sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him, and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Verse 25 indicates that there were some men that truly knew the intention of the Pharisees, those who dwelt in Jerusalem, not those who were from Galilee and the other parts of Judea as they ventured to, to 
Jerusalem, but those who, who resided in Jerusalem, they knew what the Pharisees were thinking. They knew the Pharisees wanted him dead. And they say, isn't this the man that they want to kill? Do the rulers know? Why, why haven't they killed him? Why haven't they taken him? Do they know something? Do they know that he is in fact the Christ? So while they want to kill him, they won't kill him because he is in fact Messiah? Is that why they can't speak against him? Is that why they cannot defeat him at his own game? Because he's right? Well, that is the truth. But then others began reasoning and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This can't be the Christ because we know him. We know from whence he comes. We know where he comes from. We know his family. We know his lineage. I, with great pain, tried to figure out why it is the Jews might have thought they were not supposed to know Christ's lineage. And I couldn't find it. The closest I could come was a prophecy in Malachi 3. And it would be a very loose connection. So no one really can point to a definitive Old Testament passage. It would have been rabbinical tradition that would have stated that nobody really knows where, Jesus, where the Christ's lineage would come from. It's not really found in Scripture. So Jesus affirmed. He said, yes, you do know from... Uh, you know from whence I am in the physical sense and yet he said I'm from my father I'm from one who has sent me I know him but you don't know him I'm from God God has sent me that's where my authority comes from but you don't know him and then he cries in the temple these things and men sought to take him, but no man could, no man would. It wasn't his time as of yet. However, many did believe on him. And they did so because they looked at Jesus Christ and they said, are we going to find someone that does more miracles than this man? That doesn't even make sense. This must be the Christ. So as we conclude, we see truly that the world's smiles are more dangerous than its frowns. The world doesn't smile at that which causes its inherent pride and self-righteousness to be exposed. The world doesn't smile at that which reveals its sin and unrighteousness. A ministry that is serving God in truth will not necessarily be a ministry that causes unregenerate men to smile. But it will be exactly what unregenerate men need to hear. And as we minister, let's make that careful distinction. The world won't always like what we have to say, but the world needs what we have to say. If unregenerate men come into this assembly and they sit under our teaching and our singing and our scripture memory and our scripture reading, they're not necessarily going to like what they hear. But they need what they hear. So we as Christians have choices to make. We can conform ourselves to the world, to their methods. We can conform our worship. We can conform our music. We can conform our teaching. We can conform our evangelism. We can conform our actions to the manners or to the methods that will make the world smile in order to convince them that they want to be one of us. Or we can live a life of distinction in a way that reveals the, to the world their sin, their rebellion, and their unbelief in order to convince them that they need what we have.
Now, one would think that we as believers would make that choice quite easily, that it would be a clear choice. But the world around us can be very deceptive. Our flesh and our hearts can be very deceptive. And so it's a decision that we must make daily. It's a decision that we must make every time there is a decision to be made. To live a life of distinction. To conduct ourselves and carry ourselves in such a way that we are reflecting to the world around us our new nature. Reflecting to the world around us the truths that we read in God's word. Not reflecting to them themselves. If the world looks at us and they see themselves, they may smile, but what's going to make them recognize that they need something? And all throughout John 7, 1 through 31, that's what we see. Jesus looking at his brethren. Jesus in the tabernacle, in the temple, excuse me, and saying, I have something that you need, even though you don't want to hear it. For though the world hates spiritual exposure, though the world hates inconvenient truth, though the world hates righteous judgment, these are in fact the very thing that the unregenerate world needs. Let's pray.